The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narconon Suncoast. Hello, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I will be your host this week. Today, we have an interview with Jam Elker. Jam is a songwriter who spins his experiences into stories. These stories told through music often touch on life's dark, gritty underbelly without judgment or condemnation, but often with a message of hope. In his formative years on Chicago's music scene, Jam played virtually every stage in the city, then toured the country. Though he loved music, he lost his way in the depths of misery and addiction on the verge of losing everything he reached out for help. Let's talk to Jam Elker. Jam, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I'm super excited because when I was reading about you and I went to your website, I know you are all about music and I'm all about music too. So I love that. Excellent. Kindred spirits. Exactly. Yes. So Jam, tell me, how did your whole drug addiction thing, how did that get started? How old were you and when did you start? Well, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a complex uh, question full, full of nuance. The first time I got blackout drunk, I was seven years old. Oh, the, my goodness. The first time I, I smoked weed was also the first time that I tried cocaine. I was nine years old. And I tried everything under the sun other than crack and heroin by the time I was a freshman in high school. Okay, and I got to stop you. Seven years old. Yes. How did you get blind drunk at seven years old? How did that happen? Uh, I was uh, staying with my cousin and my brother at my aunt and uncle's house. And my cousin and my brother were older. And the adults were out of town for the weekend. But they were old enough. Or at least my cousin was old enough. I want to say he was probably 16 to sort of be the, the babysitter. And uh, we raided the liquor cabinet and I got alcohol in my system and loved it and kept consuming it until I don't remember, uh, woke up the next day, not feeling great. Wow. Yes. Okay. So I, I, I made you backtrack, but then you were saying high school. Absolutely. So these were some of the first experiences in my life in which I found that a substance could change the way that I felt inside, could take me from feeling relatively uh, miserable, alone, full of anxiety, restless, irritable, and discontented into a state of comfort. So these were, I think, perhaps uh, planting the seeds of the fact that these chemicals and these substances could make me feel a way that I didn't feel naturally. Now, the other component of it, I think, is trauma. I think that trauma is, is a large part of, of what manifests as addiction. I don't know if you're familiar with Gabor Mate, the, the doctor who, uh, who studies addiction, and, and he says, don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. And that's something that really very much resonates with me. I had a, a difficult childhood, uh, violence, upheaval, First memories in life are my mom smashing a whiskey bottle over my dad's head to stop his violent advances, and then him walking towards me with blood gushing down his face, 
literally, these are some of my first memories in life. Um, mom leaves dad, takes me and my brother away, marries another violent alcoholic. He becomes more violent and full of rage. And rather than him, and rather than my mom leaving him with my brother and I, she stays with him, puts my brother and I on a Greyhound bus to go live with my violent alcoholic father. And I don't see my mom again, except for two short occasions for the next seven or eight years. And these are times um, that were tough for me. I'm, you know, I, I was a sensitive kid, but I think any kid, you know, deserves a, a stable childhood. And yeah. so these, these are the things that, you know, sort of, uh, I think in, informed a great deal of my, of my trauma early on. And, and an interesting thing that I've actually heard, you know, my, my drug of choice and the thing that really brought me to my knees was heroin. And I talked about my mom not being there for such formative years. I've heard people ask me who have never done heroin, what does heroin feel like? And one of the best descriptions I've ever heard of it is it feels like a mother's love. I knew you were going to say that. That is, that, uh, that's an unbelievable way to put it. Yes. So it, it provided that comfort. So the combination of the childhood trauma and then in my early years, finding these substances that changed the way that I felt. And now I do a lot of work where I go into schools, middle schools and high schools and do drug and alcohol education. And in my research, I found that it has been uh, clinically proven that the younger you are when you begin using drugs or alcohol, the more likely you are to become an addict. And I, I didn't know that when I was a kid. That's something that, that, I, that I try to stress when I, when I talk to young people about, oh, what's the big deal? It's just alcohol. It's just weed or, or whatever it might be. It is a big deal. So that I think I've talked about the, the emotional element of it being the, the trauma, uh, you know, a little bit about the, you know, the, the neurological aspect in terms of how it changed my brain chemistry using and drinking at such an early age. And um, so I think all of these things informed uh, my addiction as a whole. The, the, the heroin, which is the thing that really brought me to my knees, I didn't actually try heroin until I was 30 years old. Up until then, I, I had done everything else under the sun, and, and, and I loved it all. But I was also in, in music, right? I was in rock and roll in, in, a, in an industry that, if it's not celebrated, it's at least tolerated. Right. And another thing that I've learned is that oftentimes with an addiction, things don't change until the consequences are so great that they need to change. Right. And I was what you could refer to as a functioning addict, which I now have come to believe just means that I still know how to make money, even though my life is in shambles around me. That's right. So the consequences weren't great enough to stop. So asking when did my addiction start, I could say it started when, when I came out of the womb and just manifested it in many different ways in, in seeking fame and seeking attention, uh, through, through anger, through, uh, so many different forms have I engaged in behaviors that have not been healthy or productive, but been unable to stop regardless of negative consequences. Right. Right. And maybe I didn't, I didn't put my question exactly right, but you've answered it. It was just, when did you start with drugs and alcohol? And you did tell me that. So I get it. So now you're a successful rock musician and you're using whatever drugs you're using. How how did you then progress to heroin? What happened there? 
it was on the list. I didn't have, if it had been presented to me before that, I would have tried it. It just happens that I was never in a situation where it was offered to me until I was 30 years old. Okay. Okay. And then at what point did you have what we kind of refer to in the podcast as your point of no return? Like when did you finally take a look at it and figure that you had to do something about it? Sure. That's a, that's a great question. And I love that you call it the point of no return. I oftentimes refer to it as my moment of clarity. I don't like to use the term bottom because I think that it implies a destination. I've been in treatment centers speaking and and clients have asked me, what was your bottom or what is my bottom? And it's more the moment of clarity. I've seen people who have stopped after losing a job or one DUI, other people who've lived under a bridge for 10 years and that wasn't enough. So it's that moment of, of clarity. So for me, it was when I found out that I was going to be a father. I was, I was deep in my heroin addiction. I found out I was going to be a father. And not understanding the disease of addiction, the way I saw it was great. I am going to have a child. There's no way I'll still be a junkie once I have a child. The day that child is born, I will stop. The other thing is it gave me license for that following you know, seven, eight months to just go crazy. And in that seven to eight months, I overdosed, ended up in uh, the emergency room. Uh, you know, all of the stuff that we do, it's, it's, it's not, um, you know, it's, it's not unique, but I knew that was going to be when I would stop. Uh, my child was born and I spent, uh, some time detoxing in, in advance of, of the moment and was still going through some withdrawals when my, when my child was born. But then I had a week to be in that bubble. I, I was working at a, at a, at a day job at this point in time to pay the bills. I had a week off. I knew I could be in that bubble with my child and that was going to be plenty of time for me to clear my head, get it out of my system. And then I'm a dad and everything's going to be fine. In that week I was fine. But the next week when I had to go back out into reality, I realized that, you know, I had been high for the better part of a decade. I had been using heroin daily for the better part of a decade. I knew no longer knew how to deal with reality without being high. The depression, the anxiety, the the overwhelming feelings that I had been numbing myself to came back. Mm. And I went to my job that first day, stayed there for the shortest period I could, left and went back and, and hid. Did that three days in a row and by the Thursday I couldn't blow things off anymore. And I, and I sat there at my desk going crazy and ended up out of my car and spent two hours in my car crying, screaming, punching the steering wheel. I can't do it. I can't get high. I have a child. I can't do it. Having this momentous internal battle that was going on between me and and, and my addiction, the better part of me and, uh, and that, that other sort of demon living inside of me. And at some point that demon spoke up and said, Jam, you have a child now you can't do this job unless you're high. You need to keep this job to be able to support your child. You need to get high. And that voice won out in that moment. Yeah, that makes sense. I drove to the west side of Chicago. I got some heroin and was able to then continue in that functioning addict role. But it was in that moment that I realized there were no more lines in the sand to draw. There were no more things that were going to happen that were going to get me to stop and that was the first moment that led to me reaching out for help and finally truly surrendering and changing my life. Wow. So when did you reach out for help? 
How, how long ago? Uh, well, in less than a month, it will be five years. I'll, I'll celebrate five years next month uh, if, if, all, if all goes well one day at a time. Very well done on five years. That's, that's quite commendable. That is a milestone. Yes, it is. It's huge. That's awesome. So what, what kind of treatment did you do? Where did you go? I went to a treatment center in Rockford, Illinois. It was a, a, a very uh, standard sort of Betty Ford model, 12-step based uh, residential 28-day program. You know, uh, 15, 18 other guys in your unit. You're all living together communally. It was all under one roof. You did all of the, the different groups there. And uh, I spent the first seven days there curled up on a plastic mattress in a detox, in the detox, uh, you know, shaking, puking, uh, defecating on myself, all of the things that you do when you're going through withdrawal. I went up to the unit and spend, uh, spent about yeah, 26, 27 days up there until uh, I, I ventured out on my own and was truly the best thing that ever happened to me. Finally surrendering, letting go, stopping to try to do things my way, humbling myself and, and listening to the suggestions put forth by those who had what I wanted. You know, again, it's commendable. And I, I think what resonates with what you're saying is that one, sometimes one of the hardest things to do is to ask for help. And yeah. that's, that's almost like, you know, if you can do that and, you know, and be willing to experience help you kind of have taken your first step in the, you know, in the direction that you need to go in. But sometimes that's the hardest thing to do. And it's, it's, it's somewhat counterintuitive. You think that you are being strong by going it alone and that asking for help is weakness when it is the exact opposite. It is the hardest thing to do. It takes so much strength to reach out, allow yourself to be vulnerable and, yeah. and, and, and your authentic self, which is needing help, which is needing others who have been through what you've been through to help show you the way. It, it, is, it is absolutely the critical first step to finding true recovery, reaching out for help. Yeah, I would agree with you. Just a reminder that you are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For further information on the podcast, you can go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or you can find us on our Facebook page by the same name, or you can call us at 727-314-7080, or you can email us to the addiction podcast at yahoo.com. For further information on Narcan on Suncoast, call 1 877 339 3324. That's 1 877 339 3324. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast and get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com, 
That's N-E-W-M-A-N-I-N-T-E-R-V-E-N-T-I-O-N-S dot com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. How has music helped you with your recovery? <laughs> hmm. <Let's laughs> so in that the 10 year pit of despair that I was in, that was my heroin addiction. I almost never picked up my guitar. I had an acoustic guitar. One of the few items that I had in pawned in my addiction. I, I still had this acoustic guitar. In my, in my twenties, I played in bands. I toured, I did all the stuff. And then at, you know, at 30, I, I, found heroin and, and my entire life changed. But I brought that guitar with me when I went to treatment, not understanding what treatment would be like. I thought I'd be sitting around bored all day. I would, I'd strum a few chords, maybe learn a song or two to keep myself occupied. But instead, something happened that completely changed the trajectory of my life. I had a counselor there named Nanette. Nanette saw that I had the guitar, and she made the suggestion, thinking outside of the box, then maybe I should do some of my treatment work as songwriting. She knew that I had been a songwriter. We had talked about it and she asked me if I'd be interested in doing that. And I knew that if I filled out the, the workbook that they gave me for, you know, uh, trigger warnings and, you know, uh, resentments and all of the different things, you know, that, that they ask you to do in the treatment workbook. I know if I, if I did my treatment work that way, I would maybe think about it for 30 minutes while I was writing and it would be done. But if I wrote songs about the guilt, the shame, the remorse, the, the amends that I would have to make, the, you know, the, the relapse warning signs, things like that, really dug into it, that I would pour over it again and again. At the same time, so I started to do that as my own form of, of therapy, right? Right, right? And it was the most amazing form of healing. I, I was connected to something, which brings me to my next point. The other thing that they asked is that you try to have some sort of spiritual awakening, whatever that means to you. And again, when I got there, I'd, I'd been beaten into that state of reasonableness. I was willing to do whatever they asked me to do. So I opened myself up to whatever this power greater than me was. And it truly manifested to me and through me with music. Right. And so the things that I was that were coming out of me, I don't know where they were coming from. I say it all the time. I felt like an old radio that finally had been tuned into the right frequency. And this music just was hitting me and coming through me. And so the combination of writing for my own therapy and it being this, this form of spiritual awakening was, was everything. It was the thing that got me in touch with that trauma, right? The trauma that I talked about earlier that needed to be processed. If it was not processed, I knew that I was going to die. The next thing on the line for me was death. And I was numbing myself to those traumas. So I had to figure out a way to process it. And the most effective way for me was using music and songwriting as, as a way to do that. So it was the the genesis of my recovery in so many ways that's awesome i mean that is that's amazing and the analogy that you give about the radio and finally <laughs> getting tuned what a what a great analogy but oh you just warm my heart you know because uh, music and aesthetics it it has such an ability to 
you know, it's so cathartic and it has such an ability to change. And I love that you were able to use that to help you recover. You know, I've interviewed a couple of musicians who are part of Rock to Recovery. Are you familiar? Sure. Yep. I am. And it's, it's the same kind of idea. And, you know, anybody listening, if you, you know, have access to music or you can make music or, you know, somehow relate to music, I think it's a, I think it's a great tool. But that, that's a critical point that you make. There are people who have said to me, well, that's great. That worked for you, Jim. You're, you're a musician, but how would that work for me? And I think using music as a part of your recovery can even be potentially more effective if you don't identify yourself as a musician, because I already had that, that natural connection when I, when I needed to emote, I could put it on paper. I could put it to, to melody, but for someone who doesn't have that natural uh, skill, to, to show them how they can use music. It doesn't have to be writing uh, songs. It can be writing poetry. Everyone, you know, everyone is a poet. Everyone is a musician. It's just whether or not you judge yourself as, as good about how willing you are to get uncomfortable, how willing you are to fail is really what level of an artist you are. But everyone is an artist inside. So everyone has the ability to use it. We know that recovery does not happen in your head. Recovery happens in your heart and in your soul. And there is no quicker way to get out of this crazy thing up here above your shoulders and down here where recovery happens in music. Nothing takes you there quicker than, than, than music. It, it is the universal language. And it, I've seen it time and time again as, as I, I have a music group that I do at treatment centers. I, I work with individuals, showing them how to use music in their recovery. And I've seen it time and time again. It, it truly can work for for everyone i think it's brilliant and a, a little bit of tangential to that but you know along the lines of music you know there's a film that came out recently called blinded by the light and it's about a young pakistani boy in london who discovers he's introduced to bruce springsteen's music and it okay. changes his life because he there's so much uh there's so much prejudice and bigotry against him because of his nationality and because of his religion and listening to bruce springsteen you know, helps him deal with life and deal with a lot of the ugliness that is around him. And, and he's not trying, he actually, he's a po also a poet, so that it makes sense. But it's, but music, as you say, it's inspirational, it's universal. You don't, it doesn't matter what language you speak, music can still move you to tears, to laughter, to anger, to whatever. I would, I would imagine that, that a part of the story that you're talking about was that this young man in this movie listened to Bruce Springsteen and he was able to hear his own story and some of the things that Bruce was saying. So That's right. this is something that, that, that I talk about a lot with, with the power of music in recovery. So why do we connect? Let's say you're feeling sad. You want to listen to a sad song. This happens with people. You would think it would be the other thing, but why you would think people would want to listen to something happy, but sometimes you're sad. You just want to listen to sad songs. So Why? The reason is empathy. That person has been through what you've been through. It's a shared experience. That's right. And that is, and that is, and that is a form of community. And I always bring this up to people when I'm showing them the healing power of music in recovery. Addiction is about isolation and recovery is about community. And that community can occur in that moment between you and the person you're listening to who wrote that song between the gentleman you were just talking about and Bruce Springsteen between you and whoever your favorite artist is. So we talk about triggers 
and triggers being a negative thing. But in this sense, triggers can be a very positive thing. You can listen to a certain song. I'm feeling very lonely right now, right? The hungry, angry, lonely, tired is something you hear. It, it's sort of, you know, treatment 101. You want to stay away from these, these moments in time. Well, if you're feeling lonely and you want to get out of the thoughts that can occur in that, when you're in that place, you can listen to a song where someone else is feeling something and you are no longer lonely. You are connected to that person. You are now a part of a community, which is how recovery happens. It's, it, I, I, I could, you know, preach about it all day, how, how important recovery is or how important music is in recovery. If, if you, if you put it in, in your recovery toolbox and, and really use it as an, as an actual tool. Yes, I agree. I completely agree. Jam, I know that you do some speaking for um, Steered Straight. Yes. Do you speak to young people? Yes. So as I was mentioning earlier, doing some drug and alcohol education for middle school and high school students. All right. Yep. Yes. And how do they, do you talk to them also about music and maybe using, using music? I do not. Oh. I, what I do when I walk in to a school, I have a little video presentation that goes along with it. And the first the first slide is about a 20-second uh, clip of my music video for my biggest song, Junkyard. And, and I play that to get them a little excited, but really for one reason. I want them to think that I am a, a big-time fancy rock star. Because for whatever reason, if they think that I am this rock star who's taking time out of his day to come and spend time with them, they're all of a sudden paying attention. Yes. I, I, I play it up that I am this, you know, basically Bono has just walked into their school to talk to them. Right? <laughs> I love it. So, but after that, it, this is just to get their attention. After that, no, I don't go into music and I don't go into recovery. Because I remember when I was in school and someone spoke at my school about their struggles and then about their recovery, the way that I heard it being the, you know, the, the, the crazy almost rock star or, or, or you know, the crazy kid who, who drank for his first time at seven years old, what I heard is, okay, I can do all of those things and I'll be okay down the road. Uh. When I go to schools, I set it up with the music, but I don't talk with them about how beautiful my life is in recovery. I talk with them about how I thought when I was a kid that it was okay that, that weed and alcohol were not a big deal mm. and that I went there rather than building healthy coping skills as a way to deal with the problems that all you know, teenagers, adolescents feel. And then I talked to them about how I was not taught that the younger you are when you start using drugs and alcohol, the more likely you are to become an addict. And so I used that rather than building healthy coping skills. And then I talk about my demise as a result of that and tell them how important it is when they're in those situations rather than going to drugs and alcohol to truly build healthy coping skills. That, that's, right. that's really the main point of, of what I try to get across to kids when I speak to them. Right. That's awesome. I was just wondering if, uh, and I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, sorry about that. I was just wondering if music might fall into a coping skill, but I don't know. Throwing it out there. Sure. It, 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 I mean, for me in my recovery, it, it, it absolutely is a huge coping skill. And when I'm talking to the kids, you know, I'll give them examples of, of coping skills. And one of them certainly is music. But there are a lot of kids who are, who are athletes, who sports could be their outlet, or other artistic expression can be their, their coping skills. So good point. I'm, I'm trying to keep it uh, when I'm speaking with young people as general as possible in that sense. And, and I have an hour with them. So I don't, it's important 
particularly in this day and age where it's hard to keep people's attention. I, I try, try not to get up there and do uh, a lecture similar to the one that I, I might do, you know, with a, with a group of professionals. Like I recently spoke at Google. That's going to be a different conversation than wow. I'm going to have with high school kids. Wow. Did you speak yeah. about your own, your own history and your own recovery yeah. with Google? Huge, huge honor. Their, their third annual uh, mental health awareness conference at their headquarters in Silicon Valley. I was invited out there and, and spoke to uh, a, a large group of, of their staff about my experiences in uh, addiction and, and in recovery, an opportunity to educate, try to reduce the stigma, uh, put, a, put a face to what you know, addiction truly is. Yeah, it was, it was a huge honor. It was one of the highlights of my career on, on the speaking side of things. Wow, that's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. So tell me and our listeners, what is next in terms of your music? You have an album coming out. What's happening? Well, we just got signed to Sony. We just got a record deal with Sony. Wow. Yeah. So that's exciting. Spent the month of July and the first part of August in Lexington, Kentucky, working with an amazing producer named Dwayne Lundy to record the follow-up to my first album, Software Scene. And the new album is with my entire band. So the band, my first album was solo, Jam Alker. This is the Jam Alker band, also known as the Jab, Jab short for Jam Alker band. So the Jab as a deal with Sony, we have an album that was just finished. The first single will be out in November, and the entire album will be out early 2020. We are in talks with several major international acts about going out in support of them on tour. So what is coming up is international touring and the release of an album through Sony. Wow. My recovery. You are a rock star, Jam. <laughs> you know what? It's uh, I'm I'm blessed. I'm I'm very lucky to be in the position that I'm in. But I'm also very aware of the fact that this is not a result of me doing things the way that I want to do them. This is a result of my recovery. If I was doing things my way, I'd be dead on the west side of Chicago. This is listening to people who are far wiser than me and following the way that they told me to do things that they call suggestions, but they were telling me what to do. And I, and I listened. So these are, these are all amazing accolades to be able to talk about speaking at Google, getting signed to Sony, having an album come out. This is great, but these are gifts of my recovery. And that is first and foremost, what is most important to me. These are all things that have manifested my life as a result of me focusing my life on using the gifts given to me to be of service to others. I know that without a shadow of a doubt. And as long as I stay focused on that and don't let this other stuff get to my ego, I believe I'll be fine. That's awesome. You know, it's interesting that you say that. I did an interview last week and the young man said, you have to work at recovery and it has to be, you know, a number one priority and really work at it. Yeah. Always. So if, if you could say one thing, to all our listeners, one message. I know we have addicts who listen. I know we have a lot of loved ones and families of addicts. What message would you like to tell them? I would give an entirely different message to a loved one than I would to an addict. Fair uh, enough. You can do both. <laughs> sure. So to uh, the loved one, I'm sorry that you are suffering. It is not your fault. And 
you have energy that has been produced inside of you as a result of your worry and care for your loved one. Oftentimes that energy is misguided in trying to fix a person who is not ready yet to be fixed. Doesn't mean that energy, that, that nervousness, that thing does not exist inside of you. It does. My suggestion to you would be to take that energy and turn it into self-care. Take care of yourself. Yeah. Set healthy boundaries. Let the person who is still in their addiction know that you love them and they'll be there for them when they're ready for help. But do your best to lovingly disengage from their behavior and use that nervous energy that you might want to use to help them to take care of yourself. That's a great message. It is not your fault. It is not your fault. Exactly. To the addict who is out there suffering or to the person who is in recovery, I would say that you have to find your purpose at the core of this is finding what your purpose is and your purpose is going to be different than mine. But if you sit with it, you will find what your purpose is. It has to include being of service, getting outside of yourself and helping others in one way or another. So I suggest finding a way to get outside of yourself and give to someone who has no way of paying you back. And within that, I think is where you're able to find your purpose. These are the things that feed our soul, feed our heart and our soul. And those are the things that are crying out for help when we're in our addictions. Those are the things that are crying out for help when we're early in our recovery. And sometimes even late in recovery where a person is not truly satisfied. My, my recovery is not about stopping drugs and alcohol. The payoff for not using has to be greater than the payoff for using. And that payoff has to come from within. Right. Find the thing that fills you on the inside and do that. Follow that with the same passion that you followed getting your next one. And the payoff will become greater than the payoff for using. It's not easy. Nothing worth it ever is easy. It's a lot of work, but I swear to you, it's worth it. That's right. That's awesome. I can't, I can't thank you enough for your message. I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. I wish you huge amounts of success and thank you so much. It has been my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening today. I absolutely loved Jam's interview. I just, his whole thing with music, I think is just amazing. And if anybody listening can figure out a way to use music as a tool to deal with whatever they're dealing with, I sincerely hope that they do that. Once again, we're getting close to the holidays and next week is Thanksgiving. And please get your loved one into treatment now. Don't think that you just want them to be around for Thanksgiving dinner or you just want them to be around for Hanukkah or Christmas or whatever holiday you celebrate. It's not going to be a good experience for them or for you. It's not going to be a good experience until they get into recovery. So get them into treatment. Do it now. You want to have many, many more Thanksgiving dinners and many, many more holidays with them. So get them into treatment now. Don't wait. Do something about it now. 
Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and please give us a five-star rating so that we can come up in the search engines and more and more people will listen to this podcast. If you have a story you would like us to talk about, you can reach us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com. Everybody have a great week. I will talk to you next week. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 